You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Oh, with your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. Uh, he's back. It's been a little while. We missed him. I am so thrilled to see you from the Consumer Choice Center. He also does uh, some background work, which basically means I ask really dumb questions and he answers them patiently on how to do things like technology and all sorts of stuff like that. My friend, uh, how are you doing over there in Europe today? I'm doing great, Andrew. Thanks so much. And uh, congrats on the program. Uh, yeah. I think the first time we spoke, we did not have video capabilities. No. But have since ramped up <laughs> and uh, doing a great job doing the daily program. I know a lot of people are listening in, a lot of people tuning in. I know your numbers are going up. So uh, thank you for allowing me to be a part of the experiment. And he is an integral part of the experience. Make sure you find him wherever he does his stuff. Yale Alsoski. Uh, part of that great consumer choice network. We've had uh, some of his compatriots on. Going to have some more in the future. We just found out. We'll talk about that some other time. All right, buddy. Uh, you're in Europe. You're in the lovely city of Vienna, Austria, one of my favorite countries in the world to visit. I got to imagine, though, that the things in Ukraine are striking you a little differently because you're only about a six-hour drive from where this is going on. What's kind of the European perspective for the American press, which, of course, we know we're American-centric media, we're hearing all this stuff about the EU and unity and things like this, but how's it actually landing for people that are there like you? Yeah, very. I guess off the top, I have to uh, answer the call of many American political pundits who are now weighing into the waters of which country should you know, have accession rights to the European Union. Uh, very funny that most people didn't even know what this process was and are now opining on it as if they are some grand authorities. Uh, so I just wanted to throw some shade at the beginning. Uh, very true. So we are uh, just between uh, Austria and Ukraine is Slovakia. Uh, there's Poland that's going to be receiving a lot of refugees. Uh, the latest numbers say anywhere between 4 million and 5 million that will be going westward. I actually think Austria is not really ready for what's about to come. So if we think back to 2015, we obviously had the refugee crisis. And there we had a lot of people who were coming from Afghanistan, who were coming from Iraq, who were coming from Syria. And it was around, you know, let's say about a million. And if we're facing, you know, that number with Ukrainians, I don't think uh, many of these countries are really ready. I, a, I don't think 
many of these people are going to want to settle at all. They obviously want to go back home, want to go back to Ukraine, uh, but they're not going to settle in Romania and Poland and Slovakia. They're going to go to Germany. They're going to go to Austria. Uh, they're going to go to these countries that are much closer, that have better labor markets, that are you know somewhat a bit more better positioned to help them. So I think that's the primary thing that that people are looking at. Austria is kind of a weird state in the both in the European theater and world theater because it's technically neutral. Uh, and that was really because of the Soviet Union. We go back to 1955. Uh, if we go back to the end of the Second World War, much like Berlin was divided between you know the Allies, uh, Vienna was much the same, and as was Austria. And most of the Americans and the Brits and the French, they wanted to put their resources more into Germany because it was a much larger country. So the Soviets actually took more of a role. So really from 45 until 55, the Soviets kind of ran the show. And the only way that the Soviets agreed to leave Austria at that time is if Austria committed itself to permanent neutrality. Uh, so that's why Austria is not in NATO. And that being the case, Austria has still been very forceful in condemning what is happening, in uh, you know trying to provide whatever resources we can. Again, it's not the most impressive military in the world, uh, but I think location is is really vital. And a lot of people here, you know, are worried about obviously the ramifications. You know, if we if we even talk about any nuclear disaster, you know, we're kind of in the the firing line. You know, not to mention a lot of uh, Ukrainians, and a lot of people here remember. Uh, Chernobyl, and remember growing up and having to take, you know, iodine pills and all this kind of stuff. They remember not being able to go outside because there were particular, uh, you know, some kind of contaminants that were in the sand or they're in the sky. So this is the kind of stuff that people are thinking about a little bit more here. Uh, the refugee question, I think, is going to be very important in the next couple of weeks. We haven't heard much about it. You know, we hear people are there with water and blankets and everything else, and they're all happy and and you know all is good. But the problem is that European countries are very bad at assimilating people. Uh, they're very bad at assimilating people generally when there's no crisis. And when there is a crisis, I don't think they do a very good job either. So I'm actually fairly pessimistic. There are a lot of great charities. There's a lot of money that's being raised. There's a lot of great individuals that are going above and beyond, you know, going to the border, shepherding people in. Uh, but overall, very pessimistic view. You know, and it, again, Austria is not a power player. Uh, most of the energy here is pretty, pretty much, uh, you know, secured domestically, either through hydroelectricity, wind energy, and these kind of things. So we don't have the big existential questions that Germany has when it comes to energy and the like. But I, I would say, uh, not a not a good situation, uh, at least from here, particularly for a lot of my colleagues and friends who are from Ukraine or are dealing with all of this. Yeah, talking to Yael Alsowski, uh, Consumer Choice Center. He comes to us through the magic of the internet from Vienna, Austria. Uh, Chancellor Niehammer for Austria, you were tweeting about it earlier. He's offering 90 days. Poland's talking about two-year exemption. I think the EU is going to pick up the two-year exemption is what they were talking about in the uh, EU Congress or whatever they call it now. Um, that seems to be kind of where people are landing on it. But you're, you're a consumer choice guy. You're an economic and market guy. One thing, everybody's talking about the sanctions and the energy things and all those things are going to affect the world economy refugees affect the economy greatly. And that's one of the reasons some bad actors in the world have used refugees, uh, weaponized them. They have used them before. You talked before about, you know, getting pushed up out of Syria and places like that. But talk about that for a second. That's something Europe, once they get past this initial bit of crisis, that's something they're going to have to really deal with, though, because refugees do have an economic price tag attached to them. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that 
why I mentioned it would be so difficult for many of these European countries to assimilate migrants has nothing to do with, you know, the color of anyone's skin or religion or anything else. It's just that the laws here don't work that way and the labor markets are incredibly rigid. It's not easy to get a worker visa. You know, this is not a visa paradise. You know, these things are stringently regulated. Uh, there's all types of quotas that apply to every single country of people that are coming in. So yes, they can relax those and maybe they will. I think when it comes to how it'll impact, you know, the domestic population, it really comes down to that. I mean, we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have, you know, probably at least 100 to 200,000 people uh, who will be either in, in Germany or Austria, who will be in Ukraine and won't necessarily have the right to work. Uh, most of the men have had to stay home. So it'll be a lot of families. It'll be a lot of uh, women and children. And there are already a lot of Ukrainians who live in Austria, who live in Germany in these areas. Uh, some of them do have residency permits, others don't. So they work in what we call the black economy. You know, the, the Indians call it black money, but, you know, those who basically just doing cash jobs, you know, working at restaurants, cleaning houses, everything that we assume a lot of, uh, you know, Latin American immigrants do in the U.S., we're going to have a, this kind of situation because the labor markets are not really good at trying to bring new people in. And I think this is going to have a big impact in many of the different industries. The, th the places where we would need folks, you know, particularly construction, these kind of things, you know, these would all be jobs for men who, according to the laws, are supposed to be staying in Ukraine, not allowed to leave. So I think that's going to be a huge upheaval. There's definitely going to be a drain on resources for a while. Uh, you know, that's something that's going to be very difficult for the economies to kind of deal with. And we're not even fully opened, you know, after COVID. We have to remember that. We still have a vaccine mandate that is supposed to be enforced here in Austria. Uh, some restrictions still apply in many places. I'm still wearing a mask everywhere I go. So there's there's a lot of different things that are going to make it difficult for us to spring back. I do, however, believe in the goodwill of people. There's a lot of private people who are dedicated to sponsoring refugees who might be coming, which is, I think, one of the, the better solutions that we can have here. But we got to open up our labor markets. We got to have them more flexible, allow people to come, not just come, but also be able to work, uh, be able to, to earn a living, because otherwise they're just, uh, you know, poor refugees and can't do anything. And uh, my family is, you know, we had a history of that as refugees, and I'm sure everyone has a story like that in their family. Yeah, it's good to start with the refugees because I want to put the human interest onto the politics. But we do have to talk about the politics of this stuff. It would appear, uh, trying to find some silver lining in here, that Europe uh, kind of corporately has started to wake up that maybe their post-Cold War existence of the last 30 years was a little bit of a facade. They had lived mostly under the auspices of the United States' protection. Germany, of course, your neighbor to the north at Austria is always kind of attached to the hip to. Uh, an amazing speech by Olaf Scholz that pretty much overturned 30 years of German policy, for lack of a better way to put it, um, increasing spending, a $100 billion infusion into the military. Um, France is talking about it. Uh, Britain's talking about changing their EU commitments. There, there's a real title shift going on right now. It, we'll have to see if it lasts. But politically, does it feel on the ground there that this really is kind of a turning point of, OK, Europe is going to have to start looking to take care of itself defensively? Um, I think there are, I think there's a lot of virtue signaling on that. I don't know if there's the huge shift that's needed. You know, Germany going up to 2% is, 
uh, I hate to bring him in, the ghost in the room, but it's what Trump was calling for for a long time. It's what a lot of you know, U.S. military experts have been calling for for a long time. And it's just very much true. And I know that you've experienced that, that, you know, the whole point of NATO was to keep Germany down and to keep the Russians out. And, you know, what we've done so far with this project, it really has been pretty wayward. And there hasn't really been a focus. You know, there have been some of these things that happened in the Balkans. You know, there were some interventions there. But a lot of Europeans just didn't know what it was for. I mean, there were talks about a common European EU army a few years ago, and it was sort of laughed off because nobody saw that there would be an enemy in sight. And if there was an enemy in sight, we could pretty much guarantee the U.S. would take care of it for the Europeans. Uh, but now they realize that, you know, everyone's kind of, they have to look out for their own interest. And these blocks, you know, the political blocks, whether it be the European Union, whether it be NATO, I mean, all these things are just pieces of papers and small agreements. But as soon as land is taken... You know, there's still an active war that's going on between Cyprus and Turkey and Greece. You know, there's still kind of this, all these conflicts that have been going on between uh, Macedonia and Greece. You know, all on paper, everything seems, you know, hunky-dory, but many of these countries are realizing that they've been putting all of their money and all of their citizens' hard-earned tax dollars into healthcare systems, into pensions. And that's why, you know, a lot of European countries are very high on these lists of uh, best places to move to and best social systems. But that really comes at the, you know, the trade-off that they don't have the money in defense. They don't have that at all. And they certainly don't have the training and the technology. And a lot of it is just reliant on American military and might. And we saw what happened with Trump. You know, you can only imagine in maybe 10 years from now, we'll have something that's, you know, a Trump 2.0 who will go to the next level and say, well, if you're not paying these bills, we're just going to move. We're going to take all of our troops out of Germany. We'll take all of our troops out, you know, from across the continent and refocus, go somewhere else. Yeah, talking to Yal Elisovsky, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the crisis in Ukraine from a European perspective. We're going to talk about how technology has affected this. He's been tweeting about that. It's one of his bailiwicks. He explains things in technology that I don't even know exists. So he'll explain that to me like I'm five. More with Yal Elisovsky right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with our good friend from Consumer Choice Center. He's also on Consumer Choice Radio on Big Talker Network that shares this program as well, Yalel Soski. Um, you took up an interesting point that I hadn't really thought of. It. This is definitely, as opposed to a, it is a shooting war, this has really been a technology war. We've been, we talked to our friend John McCumber about all the cyber stuff going on. You had an interesting take on this too, is People are realizing their personal communication and how they do their social media feeds and how they do their own stuff. It's something you've been hitting on for years that I've known you. You've always talked about these sort of things, you know, have your own separate thing. Don't rely on a big tech company for a server and things like this. But you've been talking about how people communicate, even folks in Ukraine, how they can do things better. Talk about that a little bit, because this has been really interesting. Some of the technology things that are coming out of necessity here. Yeah, I think it comes down to you know, we have these conversations in the U.S. and and sort of the liberal democracies about social media and how far we want social media to go. And, you know, in many other countries, they deal with active blocks, you know, when they go search for things. If you're in Turkey and you're trying to go to Wikipedia, you know, just uh, good luck. <laughs> you know, throughout the entire Arab Spring, many of these dictatorships, one of the first things they would do is shut down the Internet. And we've seen that particularly in this situation, there's a lot of people who are trying to get information. There are a lot of people who are trying to get information, not just in Ukraine, but also in Russia. 
You know, we don't have the most active polls of how much of the population supports what is happening, but there are a lot of people who are dissidents and would like to follow the actual information. And uh, the Russian state has been very active in shutting down platforms like Meta and Twitter and really trying to develop as many blocks as possible. And I'm, I assume, I can only assume they're trying to do the same in Ukraine. So one thing I've seen a lot of people start doing are deploying these Tor nodes. So Tor project is sort of a an encrypted layer, you know, of the internet called the dark net, dark web. Uh, it's a project that was developed originally by uh, U.S. government, the Naval Observatory. And this has allowed for people to connect to the internet anonymously. Uh, it's something that Edward Snowden talked a lot about in uh, his book, actually, that he was running nodes. Running a node just means you're running a sort of a section of the network uh, on your computer and on your internet connection. So what I've kind of done, uh, along with a lot of other people, is provided my internet connection to a lot of the people who are in Ukraine and Russia that are trying to uh, get a lot of this information. So that's one thing. Uh, I think that's happening a lot more. And it really comes down to using these decentralized services. And we're going to be a lot more reliant on them because we have to realize we're only you know, a crisis or two away from large companies that are online, social media or whatever, from being shut down. Um, either because of force or because of government regulation and whatever is happening in Russia, you know, I think a lot of American politicians are kind of drooling to see the amount of power that they have over the Internet. Uh, it's not popular to say that. I think it's true because it comes down to information and control. And the more decentralized that we can have our networks and work online, the better information that we can get. There's so many great Telegram channels. You know, Telegram is a great app that was created by a Russian dissident. Uh, that a lot of people are using to get information and share videos, uh, something that's encrypted. Uh, people have been able to use that. People are using things like Mastodon servers, which are like decentralized Twitters to be able to share information and post and not be afraid that they're going to be shut down or canceled or have something deleted. Uh, so I think a lot of these services are necessary. They always are. Uh, but the more that we're able to control it on our own, the more that we can actually have reliable partners and could be sort of a trustless E ecosystem, that's just a lot better. But unfortunately, a lot of the state actors are, are continuing to have more control. And we're seeing that today in Russia. And I think that's why people should be very vigilant and should take as much as they can and try to host it themselves. See, I wanted you to talk about it because you always, you know, your whole thing is consumer choice, the free market, the open market. I think, and I'm guilty of this too, and I'm sure you are too, we tend to talk about this stuff in the abstract a little bit too much. We talk about things like, you know, freedom of speech and technology and, you know, personal accountability for what you're doing. But when you have a crisis, if those are skill sets that you develop and they are skill sets in crisis, they have a lot of real practical application. Like you said, you, you can directly assist somebody in Ukraine just from where you're sitting at. You can relay uh, good information against Russian propaganda anywhere in the world if you've got a Twitter feed or a Facebook post. I think this is a good life lesson on this technology stuff of like, yeah, we talk about it politically and culturally, but there's a lot of practical application if you stay on top of this stuff. And then when the crisis comes, you're actually better prepared to meet it. And I hope your audience doesn't think I'm shilling, but uh, I think Bitcoin has provided a good example there as well. There's a lot of uh, Russians who uh, live and work throughout Central and Eastern Europe, you know, who have jobs that are in the so-called West, you know, but still have Russian bank accounts and have rubles that they've been saving up. Well, if there's a complete collapse of the Russian banking sector, you know, all that money is going to go away. You're going to have some kind of hyperinflation. So many of them have been looking to Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies to try to convert their money. 
And, you know, it's also allowed things like the armed forces of, of Ukraine to be able to collect, you know, upwards of 15 to 20 million dollars in Bitcoin donations from around the world. And we're able to do that instantaneously. And, you know, there are groups of people that I know that are driving back and forth between Poland and Ukraine. You know, they're trying to buy blankets for people. They're trying to buy, you know, all kind of feminine products, things for babies. And, you know, they're soliciting donations in cryptocurrencies and people are able to send that immediately. And people are able to have it in their wallet. They're able to spend it. They're able to convert it. And I think that's something that is, is incredible at this moment to see. Yes, there's going to be a big mainstream media focus on are the you know, Russian oligarchs using this to try to bypass sanctions. Okay, sure, we hear these arguments all the time. You know, the dirtiest dollar that is being, you know, shared around by the drug dealers. But we have to think about ways that we can promote value. And one argument that I've seen from a lot of tech people is, you know, we all want to be there. We all want to help. We want to have our particular skill be used in some way to help the people in Ukraine. But oftentimes the best thing that you can do is work more and take that surplus and donate it to a good cause of people who are already doing something very good, who are already being very effective. And oftentimes that's kind of the mantra of the effective altruism movement. You know, people can actually be more impactful doing that than changing their profile picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, Soski Consumer Choice Center joining us. Uh, you brought it up. I was going to ask you anyway, so you teed it right up, though. Um, I'm more skeptical of Bitcoin than you are. Uh, we've had those conversations. It's not from your lack of effort. You keep trying. Bless your heart. But I think it's unfair. Some people are bringing up, well, the Russians will just move everything to Bitcoin. That, that's not really how that works, though. You can defend the medium here a little bit because like, we know most of the really bad, dirty money from the Russian oligarchs. Most of that goes through somewhere like London. The UK is talking about cracking down on that through the London monetary system or the English monetary system. They can't just go grab that and immediately move it to Bitcoin. That's not how this works. Do you want to answer that criticism a little bit? Because I've seen a lot of that even in mainstream press of, well, they'll just hide it all in Bitcoin. That's not how this works, though. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is it's it's sort of it's what we call this pharmaconic problem is that you have these on ramps uh, to cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. You know, how do you get your U.S. dollar, your euro, your ruble? into a cryptocurrency. And today there exists many payment providers, exchanges, brokerages where you can do that. But often, and if not every single case, in order to get that money from fiat to the cryptocurrency, you have to provide your information, you have to provide a photo, you have to provide your street address, and you'd have a verification. You know, the, you have all these steps that any of the Russian oligarchs, they're already on these lists. There's no way they're getting past that. Now, if they're using fake identities and passports and all of this, you know, they would be doing that anyway at a Swiss bank, you know, or whatever it might be. So I'm not too concerned about that. I, I think it's that is more a red herring that's thrown up as a way to say that, you know, we should not embrace this digital system. Uh, but, you know, this is an entire ecosystem of, of decentralized digital cash that people are able to send, people are able to receive. And the greatest thing is, is it can never be deleted from your account. It cannot be frozen. It cannot be shut down. You can't be in a situation where you have, you know, an opposition figure in Russia, for instance, who's banded as a terrorist. All of his organizational assets, you know, are called a terrorism organization and he's locked behind bars. That's exactly what happened to Navalny, who is the main opposition figure in Russia, who is currently in jail. He was branded a terrorist by the government and all of the money that his foundation had raised from around the world was just frozen and they couldn't use any of it. 
But what we saw with you know a lot of the money that's being sent over to the armed forces and to charities in Ukraine, they're able to get this money instantaneously. And I think that's the more important part. And people are able to do this on their own, on their phone, on their computer. You don't need a bank. You don't need to have permission. And I think that's one of the greater parts of it. And that's where I think we should focus. You know, when it comes to bad guys doing that, you know, they're doing everything bad in the world with the U.S. dollar or the euro anyway. Uh, so I, I think a, a transition to, to crypto and to digital is, is only good for our humanity overall. Yeah, yeah, Soski. I thought of you the other day because we were running down to the beach and I was in the middle of nowhere of an undisclosed location, a little rinky-dink, two-pump gas station, rolled in there, a little country gas station, had a Bitcoin ATM terminal in it, just giggled. I warmed the cogs of my heart. I was like, yep, Yael's taking over the world. All right, let's loop back to where we started, though. Uh, you are in Europe. What what are the folks in Europe the most worried about? You've talked about the refugees. We know the specter of Putin having nukes. He's He's got 100,000 some troops in the field on continental Europe, technically right now rolling around doing all kinds of unspeakable war crimes. What are they the most worried about uh, today as we sit? I think it just has to come to, you know, if there's no more rationality in Russian foreign policy as if there ever was, what is kind of next? Because there's a lot of irredentism in uh, Europe. There's a lot of, you know, longing and nostalgia for land that has been lost. That's principally, I think, what's happening with uh, the current situation in Russia and Ukraine. You know, there's a lot of this lust that exists in many of these countries. And I, I think that's more what they're trying to figure out. And I think where more, most people are, are probably scared and with good reason are in the Baltics. Uh, they're in places like the Republic of Georgia, these are places that have been warning against Russian aggression for many years. And oftentimes, you know, too many people in the sort of apparatus and people who can afford to sit around and think about policy all day, you know, has kind of been chucked at the side. You know, it's a very Amero-centric view of the world that emanates from D.C. and New York. And the people in the Baltics, and I mean Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Republic of Georgia, they've had to deal with, you know, not just the specter of Russian aggression, but actual Russian aggression. You know, just go back to 2008 in Georgia. Uh, there's actually been a lot of uh, pretty big cyber attacks that have happened in Estonia in the last couple of years that were likely Russians as well. And I think that's where we have to kind of look and focus to next, because that's where there are a lot of vulnerable populations. I mean, some of these countries only have one or two million people. Uh, they do speak their own language, but they do have some Russian minorities there. Uh, they are in NATO, which I guess is their grand cover. Uh, but, you know, a lot of this is not going to be just, you know, with a, a brazen military, you know, example. We've had the cloak and dagger stuff. I think that's why in 2014, when we had Maidan and we had um, everything that happened in the east of Ukraine, why people didn't take it more seriously is because it was not necessarily the Russian flag going in. It was local funding of rebels. And, you know, that's something that has been a consistent problem in Europe. There's a lot of Russian funding of particular political parties that is coming out more in the newspapers. We're, we're seeing that information. People are definitely more awakened now to what can happen when you have a power like Russia. And I think people cannot just sit in the armchair and say that, you know, the international relations theories of the last 50 years will work and there'll be some balance. It's just not true. We're not dealing with that anymore. We're dealing with active threats to people's sovereignty, to people's lives. And the more that we can do to inform people, I think that's number one, because most people don't know what has happened in Estonia. You know, most people don't know Lithuania. Most people don't know that these countries, that they've only been around since the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, these are proud, independent peoples. 
And the second that we allow any kind of Russian operation to trample over their borders, yeah, that's a that's a stain on humanity. You know, that's not to say that we know exactly where U.S. troops should go or if that should be the policy response, but at least be open to hearing these stories and at least be open to knowing that there are threats that exist in the world that are not directly the cause of U.S. agency. You know, all of these other peoples, Ukrainians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, they also have agency. And unfortunately, they're being trampled on by a lot of Russian boots at the moment. Yeah, and real quick, in the few minutes we got left, though, talk about those three countries in particular, because kind of like one thing we've been saying is, you know, every day the Ukrainians show bravery, it contrasts with the wickedness of what Putin's doing. The way they have gone with their market economies, they have been absolute superstars in freedom and an open market and their economies. That contrasts with the old order that Putin really seems to want, like, hey, they're ours for this old order. It's it's their national identity is they have been absolutely killing it the last couple of decades. And I don't think the world knows that part of the story. And I think they need to know that story now as to why we need to protect and help those people from a regressive regime of a tyrant. Yeah, there's, um, you know, all these books are not for show. I, I do have a book here by Mart Lahr. So he's the former uh, prime minister of Estonia. And, you know, when Estonia was kind of created, you know, they had their, their small heyday a bit after the First World War, but then were sucked up by the USSR. Uh, but sort of in their short time as an independent country, you know, they've gone from just being this little small provincial backwater that was connected to what was once Prussia to actually being like a super functioning, super highly technologically advanced country that is actually the envy of many corporations around the world. If we think of inventions like Skype, uh, TransferWise, you know, all of these have come from Estonia, from Estonian entrepreneurs. And these are countries that take all of these principles in hand. You know, Mark Lahr, in his book, when he's describing the early resistance movement uh, to the USSR, when he's talking about founding the Estonian state, you know, they took the principles of Milton Friedman, you know, he openly says that and they instilled them into government. And he said, we're going to make the people free. We're going to make sure that the state is not too big, give people the incentives to create value for people, allow entrepreneurs to heed the call. We don't need to have government to do that. And that's been the message in Estonia. It's been the message in Lithuania. And it was the message in the Republic of Georgia for a long time until fairly recently when elections have changed and now there are more pro-Russian politicians. But all of these places are, I tell you, they're often more committed to American principles and to, uh, you know, free enterprise and entrepreneurship uh, than definitely the, the normal political narrative in the United States. You know, these are places that people are very proud to say that they're free, that they have liberty. And that's not just social freedom, it's also economic liberty. And they provided us with great examples. You know, Estonia used to be, again, it's just, uh, you know, 1.2 million people, something very small. Uh, but, you know, the average salary is getting up there. And this is a place that is not poor anymore. The people are doing well. And I think they provide a good example of the entire reason why we have freedom in the first place, why we have constitutions, why we have limited governments, it's so that people can flourish. And that's where they've been flourishing the most and the best, at least in the last 30 years. What a concept, freedom and let people have a little bit of freedom, let them self-determine and good things happen. Works every time they try it. Uh, Yal Elisowski, uh, Consumer Choice Center, let folks know where they can find you, you can follow her. Uh, your excellent radio program, all the great work Consumer Choice Center does. Y'all are everywhere now. Every time I turn around, it's like somebody else got added to the Consumer Choice Center. Uh, let people know where to find you and where to follow you, my friend. Yeah, sure. Or at consumerchoicecenter.org. I'm over there on the Twitters at Yael OSS. 
And, uh, you know, we're playing stuff on the radio. We've got our podcasting. And very soon there for Hertel Radio, I'm going to set you all up and uh, be sure you get your Bitcoin stuff. Uh, so that people can donate to the program uh, if they enjoy the value that they're they're getting from you, Andrew, they'll be able to uh, donate a little bit. So I'll get I'll get you set up soon. Enough. I knew you were going to backdoor that on me, but that's fine. I appreciate. It. Uh, and publicly thanking you, like I always do. You you have done a world of good. When I was I had to learn how to do all this stuff from scratch, like how to do video, how to do audio. You were there for me, so this program doesn't happen without you, good sir. And I look forward to having you back on it real real soon. Merci beaucoup. See, and, then you, and then you go multilingual on me too. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. <laughs> all right. All the best. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.